You're about to hear a conversation between myself and my guest, Ken Druck. What a beautiful man. He's made an impact on so many levels, on so many people. He's journeyed through his own tragic loss, and at age 73, he says that he is peaking. And he has an almost poetic way with words, so I'll leave you with two things he said that stood out to me. First, we need to take our feet off of our throats and put our hands on our hearts. In other words, self-compassion is everything. And this one I like too. Paradox is the highest form of understanding. There's a lot more where that came from in this episode. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, Ken Druck, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Sharon. So I want to start with this. You are such a person who has been here for the evolution of others and yourself your entire adult life. But I'm curious, at what point in your life did you know you were driven by being of service to others? You know, as we all look back across the landscape of of our lives, and uh, including the the part where we were little kids, for me, I I look back to being two years old. And I look back to being a two-year-old in the room and noticing and sensing and feeling what was happening in my family and with my family members and between my family members. And it wasn't that I was driven. There's almost not a word for what we go through when we're that old, when we're two years old. And we sense for the first time that people are in some degree of distress, that they're not connecting that they're not connected to themselves or they're only connected there to anger or frustration or fear. And I think uh, back there then, I became uh, what I, I guess, the antidote to what was happening in the room that lightened it up, that connected people better to each other, that connected people to their hearts a little bit more. And I began to learn how to do that. Wow. And was this a thread that happened for the rest of your life, starting with precognitive two years old all the way to the rest of your life? I think so. And I think there were times where I went deep and I did the deep dives. Those were usually times of, you know, pain in my own life or celebration and success in my own life. And then there were times where I kind of skated. You know, those times in our life where we kind of go into a little bit of a coma and we skate a little bit. 
We numb a little bit just to go through what we're going through, just to get through it. So I think it's all those things. Are you hearing a dog in the background? Because my dog, Jack, wants to join the conversation. Jack? Oh, now I hear Jack. Hey, Jack. Yeah, Jack is inspired by what I'm telling him, and he's trying to tell me that, you know, dogs go through something like that too, Ken. But what is, it's not a bark I'm hearing. What am I hearing? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's his way of talking, you know, and he could either be saying, I'm thirsty, or I really like what you're saying and I'm resonating with it. Or he could be saying, I really got to pee, you know, and you're, here you are in a podcast and I've got to pee. Yeah. What's up with that, dad? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be any one of those things. And so um, this whole, by the way, this antidote, this, this ability to lighten things up, does this extend to animals as well for you? Speaking of Jack? Yeah, I think from an early age, um, there were critters. I'm, I was very blessed to have critters in my life at a very young age and uh, to connect with them. You know, they were my buddies. They'd run out and play. Uh, they'd cry like this. And I'd want to say, Jack, either come over here and tell me what you need or be quiet now because I'm on a podcast. Yes, yes. So I look at him and he cries even more. It's like, you know, I wish you could talk dog. I wish you were the dog whisperer. But I think, yeah, I think from an early age, I connected with my critters, but they didn't whine as much as Jack is whining right now. (laughs) I'm going to guess Jack is saying, I wish I could talk right now. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, please tell people, look, he says, look, you're talking to the Hoffman process people. You know, these are people who are open, their hearts are open, their minds are open, their spirits are open. Please tell them this. If they have a pet and their pet is whining, try to listen for what they're saying. They're not just complaining. They're not just trying to take up space. You know, they're really trying to tell you something and listen for what it is. P.S. When will we have a Hoffman process for dogs, says Jack. I, yeah, there you go. Or we get to, or we get to process what it was like. You know, it, it's interesting because one of the most profound moments I ever had in a process of any kind was after nine eleven, with about sixty five people in the room who had just watched somebody they love be incinerated in the World Trade Center, and we sat down and we, you know, this is about the the fourth week, and we had already talked extensively about. You know, my husband was on the 99th floor. My wife was on the 56th floor. And and I walked into the room. I lit a candle in the middle of the room. And I said, tonight, we're going to talk about our favorite cookie as a child. What was your favorite cookie as a child? And for an hour and a half that night, that's all we talked about. And sometimes if if we walked into a room and said, let's talk about our most profound moments of connection with the pet or loss with the pet that we loved, our little four-legged children or, or sibling or whatever. Talk about that experience. People can go very, very deep into what that was like and what that has to do with them. So uh, Jack has now settled down. He, he found his way to the water. So that's what he wanted. <laughs> you predicted that. And so did your professional career start in a traditional psychotherapy, you know, talk therapy kind of setting? Completely not. My career started with times that I volunteered 
things I did in high school, things that I participated in that connected me to other people. And when I started college, I joined a program helping students from uh, underserved neighborhoods in Harlem, Bedford Stuyvers, and Lower Bronx who were failing high school and wanting to go on to college. And I ended up, this was at a time in history, the core of the civil rights movement. So I ended up becoming part of that movement, marching on Washington, working with groups of young black people who had were full of rage and objection and awareness and not quite knowing where to constructively channel it. So that's that's where my mental health career started and it evolved in a very in in a way that it was more social psychology. I was very concerned about again what was happening in the room, but now the room was this country and it was what this country was representing around the world and it was about social justice and equality and how we show up as individuals as people to meet the challenges of our time. So I evolved into my career in psychology and getting my uh, finishing my degrees and getting my doctorate. And then, you know, at the time I had started, uh, there was something awakening in the culture. Women's uh, support groups, women's studies programs were going up like fast food restaurants all over the country. And I was asking the question, what lurks in the hearts and souls of us guys? God, what's, you know, I know what basic training has been as a a guy, you know, to feel is to fail. And we try to pose and posture as as somebody who has it together. You know, the emotional awakening in men is a whole nother issue in conversation. But I had started men's groups and I had started to join with other men who wanted to really talk about, it was kind of a peer education, peer support network to talk about our experiences. Guys, what have we gone through growing up with our dads? What about our relationship with our dads? What did we, how did we want to really connect with the women in our lives or with the men in our lives? And uh, how were we going to fashion this time in our lives to groom ourselves into a career? What was that about? What is work? Since many of, for many of us, our fathers, the central organizing principle of their life was work. So there were all these questions that ran deep in us, and we started men's groups. And I started giving men's workshops and traveling around the country after I wrote my doctoral thesis on the psychology of men. And from there, wrote a what ended up being a best-selling book called The Secrets Men Keep and ended up on Oprah with big hair and the Phil Donahue show and God knows a thousand other shows. And my first, my first kind of coming out with the work, my life's work, in this case, the psychology of men. But that's where it started. And so as someone who's now spent decades, it sounds like starting with social justice and civil rights, and then having progressed into um, issues of men, having had both of those, and now looking back decades later, how do you think we've done as, uh, as humanity, as people? You know, Sharon, I, I gave a workshop a couple of weeks ago about for a group of people who have been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years. And the first thing I said was, have we all learned that some things take a lot longer 
to change, the personal transformation, which we thought was a weekend or a one week or a month experience or was going to take the rest of the year, is something that we are works in progress and that some of the deep work that we have to do is is lifetime work. It's something, or there are things that are going to be bubbling up and things that are going to be challenging us for decades of our lives. And that's okay. And that's okay. There are, you know, each season of life presents us with challenges and opportunities to become the better version of ourselves or to falter or to smooth out rough edges. In each season, we are challenged to summon newfound awareness and strength and courage and humility. And one of those points of humility is realizing, boy, there are some things that I thought I had handled and and I'm going to need to continue to cultivate all those things in me. You know, one of my slogans the last couple of years has been, take your foot off your throat and put your hand on your heart. Lean away from harsh self-criticism into kindness and self-compassion. So realizing that if I cultivate that practice of self-compassion, you know, which is something that, that the process teaches so elegantly and so beautifully, but if I continue to cultivate that, that's all I need to continue to do. There's no goal line. There's no, I've, I'm all done. I'm all finished. I'm home free. That can be an illusion. That can actually be an inhibiting factor if we, if we shame ourselves and grade ourselves and judge ourselves as failing because we still have more work to do. Given your kind of love of or beginnings in the social psychology, the kind of collective, how would you define the parallel of, you know, this idea of personal transformation is a work in progress or it takes a lifetime or sometimes more than a lifetime? How does that translate? That seems to me as an individual journey. How is that on a collective or social level? Well, I think it's really similar. You know, how many of us in the last year or two or three or four have been heartsick because we we saw what was sanctioned, whether it was the anti-Semitism or the racism or the misogyny or things that, that emerged that came back to the surface through Me Too. We got to see, or through George Floyd or through the the attacks in schools and in synagogues and mosques, that we got to see outed things that we had hoped we were further along with. It was heartbreaking. It's like, my God, some of this stuff for some people or for a lot of people has been sitting hidden, dormant, under the surface, under the skin. And it's now been licensed. It's been outed. There's been a cultural permission for people to say how they're feeling, what they believe, what the narratives are, what their unconscious biases are, and to blurt that stuff out. And I think there's been a tremendous amount of despair and discouragement for a lot of people who thought we were further down the road, we were further along than we really are. And with it comes the awareness that we have a lot more work to do, not only individually in terms of personal transformation, but in terms of our social transformation in terms of the way we carry judgment 
and bias and resentment and hatred and fear. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by, I don't, I'm not finding the right word. Maybe it's perseverance or openness, but I'm struck by imagining, I'm, I'm almost 50. You've got a couple decades on me. I'm struck by imagining you still seeing and witnessing these things and going in wholeheartedly. I know that you get called into the synagogues post-traumatic events and 9-11 as you brought up, and it doesn't seem like you're just disappointed with humanity. It feels like you are still persevering. Here's how I show up. Here's how we're going to help. Every little bit is going to elevate the vibration of our species. At least this is my read on you. Hope loves company. After another incident after 9-11, a gentleman walked into a room of about 250 people. We had been doing a day-long workshop after 9-11, and he came in to get his wife, and he and somebody invited him into the room. He was just there to pick her up. And he said, nah, this, I know how this crap works. Misery loves company. And a voice came from the back of the room and somebody said, no, sir, hope loves company. And there's, there is a magic and a miracle. And anybody who's experienced the Hoffman process knows what this is. Anybody who has done deep work in an honest and self-compassionate way and in a courageous way knows that it is possible, that change is possible, that taking the high road and choosing the high road is possible, that summoning newfound strength and awareness and waking up and awakening out of the comas or the dullness that sometimes we live in is possible. And it creates a, really a world of possibility. And we begin to see that our best possible future is ahead of us and that it's going to take work. So for me, it's the work ethic. It's being inspired to believe and give it a chance, give peace a chance, give ourselves a second chance even when we've suffered horrible setbacks and losses. And it's that resilient spirit. And I'm not talking about resilience as some superficial, oh, the glass is half full, or, you know, resilience is, you know, bouncing back. Well, we don't bounce. But organically within us, we have a yes. We have courage. We have faith. We have the capacity to endure the setbacks, the adversities, the losses in our lives, to allow what's organically growing and wants to aspire and ascend and rise up out of the ashes of our broken dreams or our broken heart, to allow that to happen. Hope loves company. And even greater than hope is beginning to take steps forward, even one breath at a time, taking those steps forward that allow us to see out, out of the darkest, most daunting, dark places, our dark night of the souls, to arise out of that and to see the possibility if we're just willing to work at it, keep the faith. I know you help others do this but you yourself have had to do this. Can you tell us about your own strength and courage and resilience in a time in your life? 
You know, Sharon, the, the reason why I think they stuck me in front of some of the first town hall meetings after 9-11, and I was asked to meet with the Sandy Hook families, and the, I've had an opportunity and the privilege of working with so many people who went through the most horrific tragedies in their lives, is because I'm real about it. And for me, that real starts with my own experience. It starts with me, you know, there's a, there's a great thing that happened to me. You know, one of the, the most profound awarenesses is one I had at the Hoffman process. You know, I got a call from a friend who saw me in utter, choiceless, inconsolable despair after the death of my oldest daughter, who died while she was studying abroad. So I'm one of those parents who's got, whose phone rang in the middle of the night to give me the worst possible news about what most people consider to be the worst possible loss, the death of one of our children. And I was totally inconsolable and broken. I was decimated. My life and my future had been obliterated as my daughter's life had been lost to her and to me and to her sister and to her mother and to all the people that loved her. And I think my journey and my being real about being a work in progress, my being real and telling people that I walk with a limp in my heart, my being real and telling people that uh, there were days the best I could do was to stay in bed, that I was absolutely shattered and broken. But to also share, as I did with one bereaved father, I started a nonprofit foundation after my daughter died in her name, the Jenna Druck Foundation. And when a grieving father came in telling me about the death of his daughter, she had been raped and murdered. He said, I don't want any of your psychological BS and don't give me any religious BS. He said, just give me, just give me the truth. Somebody told me that I should speak with you and that you'd be straight, you'd talk straight to me. He said, just tell me, I'm screwed, aren't I? And he didn't use the word screwed, by the way. I just don't want to insult anybody listening. And I looked him square in the eyes and I said, you're screwed. And for the first time since his daughter had been murdered, he cried. And we sat together. And we sat together for an hour. And mostly it was just sitting together talking about our daughters. And at the end of the conversation, I said, I have only given you half of the truth. If I told you the rest, you'd choke me and throw me to the ground. And I'm not going to tell you. Six months from now, we'll have another conversation. He said, he said I don't want to even see you again. It, you know, I'm not coming back here in six months. I want the other half right now. And I said, okay. You're not screwed. You're screwed and you're not screwed. Paradox is the highest form of understanding what we go through in a loss. And when we love somebody as much as we love our own life, you're going to have the opportunity to create meaning in your life, to honor your daughter in the way you live on. Not only your daughter who passed, your angel daughter, but your earth daughter. You're going to get to go forward and to fight your way back into life 
and to use the rest of your days to create meaning and purpose and value in a way that your daughters, both of them, would be proud of you. And I share that that is what I had done. And I even shared with him what I consider the six honorings, the six honorings after we've suffered a devastating, tragic loss. And when I shared that with him, he said, well, at least you've given me a roadmap. And I don't, I don't have to get into the six honorings here, but it's, you know, it's on my website and it's, I've actually recorded all that. And anybody who f- might find, want to find their way over there can go over to my website or we can share it later. I like what you just said. Paradox. Would you say paradox is the highest form of understanding? Is the highest form. You know, people I wear, if, if you could see me now, I wear a necklace. It's a necklace with, a, with the, the moonstone of India. And around the stone is encarved the word Hineni. It's a palindrome. It's spelled the same way in both directions. And it's the Hebrew word for I am here. Here I am. And people ask me how I'm, I'm doing. And I tell them, my daughter is gone. And my daughter is right here. She's never left my side. When her body returned from India, I held her body and she was no longer there. She was absolutely gone. But my daughter has truly never left my side. One of the six honorings is to cultivate a spiritual relationship with those who we've lost, who we love. And for me, that spiritual relationship is made up of the love that never dies. And I express that love. And I feel my daughter's love every day. Am I delusional? Should I be defrocked by the thought police? Am I going to be accused of learning that at Hoffman? You know, I don't, I don't care. It's what I, we all bet our faith in something, right? Or nothing. I choose to believe that if there's a remote possibility, I don't begin to understand the true nature of life or death. But if there's a remote possibility that my daughter hears and I love you, that I speak in the night, or an, a, a bursting I love you that I speak waking up in the morning, or that I feel her love close, I feel her touch saying, Daddy, I love you, or Daddy, you can't wear that shirt. Dad, throw that shirt out. I hate it. Whatever it is, I give myself that gift to allow myself to feel that love that never dies. But in Hoffman, I went through, and this may be interesting to people who are listening who've gone through the process, but I had a truly transformational moment at Hoffman. After Jenna died, I was so broken, and the brokenness turned, started turning into anger and rage. I would rail, I'd get into the car, and I'd make sounds that scared me. And that's when a friend turned to me and said, why don't you take a week? There's this wonderful process, and you go up to Northern California, and you take a week, and I think it would really, really be helpful to you if you found a place where it was safe to express everything you're feeling. So what did I do? I called up, and I ended up speaking to Raz. This is many years ago, by the way. And I said, Raz... I may be a lot different. I imagine you have a lot of different people that come to this program 
for different reasons, but I'm absolutely broken. And I told him what happened. I said, would you stay with me? I can't afford to come to a process where somebody's going to say, oh, well, you know, the glass is half full or here's, here's somebody, go talk to somebody or whatever. I need you to walk every step of the way with me. And he promised he would, and he did. And in the middle of my process, I was railing. I decided I was going to spit in the face of God. How dare God take my daughter? My daughter died on his watch or her watch. And I expressed several hours till I had no voice left. And the last thing that I raged at God was, let's kill one of your children and see how you like it. And as soon as I said that, I could visualize, I could imagine a tear in the eye of God. I had vented every ounce of my rage, of my helplessness, of my anger. And for the first time in my life, I could see that God was not the puppeteer that I had constructed him to be. I had made all these attributions of a higher power and forces that were stronger and bigger than me operating in the universe, that there was some that God was a puppeteer watching over me and my daughter in every moment and every person in some way. And I realized that God was crying with me. God was the force of love. God was the force of connection. God was the force of all things good. And for the first moment, that was the first moment I began to feel less alone. I had released my anger and rage, and I felt like not only did I have forces that were bigger than me with me, on my side, supporting me, helping me breathe life back into my life, but I was not alone, and there were other people that wanted to support me, and I could accept their love and assurances. So it was a really pivotal moment in my life. And when you said, you know, if you asked me, Ken, what was one of the highlights of going to the process and being in the process? And I've told Raz this many times. It was that moment. It was that moment. It was that moment of revelation. And it, be- it helped me turn a corner and begin a long healing process. Wow. Just as a teacher, you witness people having very internal but life-changing experiences, but I don't always get to know what's happening. And so hearing stories like this, being the person who has held the space, I know exactly the moment you speak of, and knowing what happened for you, wow. Well, it was my gratitude. And, you know, and Raz was kind enough and smart enough and loving enough to say, you are a work in progress. This is the beginning of something you're going to need to cultivate. And I know it is so important for all of us, Hoffmanites, for everybody in our tribe to keep their hand on their heart 
and keep cultivating the best possible future and that healing way that often awakens in the process. And just to make sure we keep our hands in our heart and, and never our foot on our throat telling us we failed. What's wrong? Didn't you learn anything there? Or didn't you get it? Or no, excuse me. We go to the process to awaken, to find a safe place to begin to do a lot of the work that continues for maybe for the rest of our lives. And that's the gift. That's the gift of the process as much as anything. Did your healing work for others change after this loss tragic loss that you experienced and once you got on the journey of healing how did that impact your your practice your your work your purpose well my work was pretty you know atypical and unconventional to begin with i mean don't get me wrong i i gave keynotes at the American Psychological Association, blah, blah, blah. But my work was pretty unconventional to begin with. I had a lot of critical thoughts and feelings about, about traditional psychology. I felt, for one thing, that positive thinking could be as destructive and harmful and wasteful as negative thinking. What people call negative thinking is often permission to look at are the young parts of ourselves that we're judging to understand that we have these brilliant systems, emotional systems that show us the full range of things we're feeling that try to get us to make good critical decisions, that try to get us to honor what we're going through, our fears and our dreams and so on, and that we can pay attention to them without, in a judgment-free way, rather than saying, oh, I'm being so negative, or you're being so negative. Why don't you be more positive? So I was one of the people critical of superficial positive thinking. I love positive thinking, but there's some kinds of positive thinking that, that arrests our development when it's used in a judgmental way, and so on. And when it came to grief and loss, I had to unlearn most of what I had learned in graduate school and in my training. We don't live in a grief-literate world, and we don't prepare therapists and coaches and trainers to be grief-literate. I have the honor now of teaching and training uh, young residents in uh, UCSD Medical School, the Department of Psychiatry, and they've got nothing. They've never sat down and had a a real conversation about the people they're going to see in emergency rooms and people who you know, are surviving a suicide of a loved one or people that are considering the end of their own lives. We have to learn how we have to become literate is in grief. So I really organically grew and learned as I went. The process was part of it, learning from all the families that I worked with when I started the Gender Drug Center, from all the parents, because we would sit and huddle the program is called Families Helping Families, and it was truly a peer education, peer support. Families, people who created a safe space to share what they were going through. There was no judgment. There were no shoulds. There was no, oh, try this, do that. No unsolicited advice. Just a free, safe space to go through what we were going to through and be honest about it. 
and to learn from one another what other people were doing that was helping them. Oh my God, that sounds so great. I'm going to try it. Or what we were doing that was really making it, making, increasing our suffering. What? You're drinking a bottle of wine every night? You know, is that really helping? It was a, a beautiful environment. And it's been those kinds of support groups, which now take place in many places. They didn't for many years are, are allowing people that kind of safety, peer education and peer support, which is a compliment to the therapists who have taken the time to become grief literate, grief sensitive, and, and are the people that I would refer the, somebody who had suffered a loss to. Wow, what a, what a treat to look back at your career and see really how you moved the needle. What an impact, what a legacy. What an honor for me. It's, you know, it's the gift. I've been so blessed in this life. And, you know, people say, you know, haven't you also been cursed? Yes, I have. Thank you. I get to live out the rest of my life, even in the happiest, most beautiful moments. You know, I'm with my grandsons this week and, and trying to visualize what it would be like for them to have their aunt and looking at the tears in my daughter's eyes as her sister's birthday passes again. And so, bittersweet, we learn about bittersweet, that we're blessed, we're so fortunate, I'm so fortunate to have had the life that I have had, and to be at my peak, I'm peaking. You know, I, I turned 73 in a month, and I have never felt more at peace more integrated of all the experiences I've had in my life, let more emotionally free, less encumbered by having to prove or please, less fearful even of death. And so, you know, some of our greatest blessings are ahead. This, the subtitle of, my, of one of my latest books, it's called Courageous Aging, Your Best Years Ever Reimagined you know, reimagined and talking to our spiritual self and talking to the higher parts of us that are not encumbered, using our imagination to think about being at peace, smiling, being happier, being more deeply and lovingly connected to the people that matter in our lives, contributing to the solution side of what's happening in our world, in our neighborhoods, in our communities you know, finding ways to do that, even building bridges of understanding with people, creating unlikely friendships with people who have a different perspective on, on you know, what's going on, on a mask or on a vaccine or on whether kids should go to school or any political garbage that we're all having to wade through in a world that is so polarized, it threatens the future of our kids and our grandkids. So we have the blessing and the privilege that we can, I, I in that book, I talk about leaving a legacy of love, not of chaos. We have an opportunity for those who are listening, who are more in the season of life that I'm in or on their way there. You know, it's the opportunity to pay it forward, to think about the blessings and miracles of our life and all the things we've been fortunate enough to do, 
the games we've been fortunate enough to play and the contributions we've been fortunate enough to make, the lives and hearts we've been fortunate enough to touch. But to say, I want to do something in the world that allows my kids and grandkids and future generations to have those same opportunities to breathe air that's clean and drink water that's clean, but also to be in a world that's not so splintered and fragmented and dangerous and unfriendly. So we have that opportunity, and that's, that's my mission. <laughs> that's, what, that's what inspires me every morning waking up. Well, I will, I will just wrap up with my, my closing thought, which is I feel very, I don't know what the right word is, lucky, I don't know, to, to be alive in a time where you were given these gifts, this ability to sense, this ability to bring people to connection, this ability to light up a room and help people reach their heart in, in partnership with the skill of organizing your thoughts, writing them down in an organized fashion, like a book or a facilitated or um, experience or starting a nonprofit. So you have this, these passions and talents that created such an impact on our world. So I guess hats off for you to have paid attention to what you were given, to use these gifts, these talents, these passions, and to do something good with them. Sharon, I thank you, as you have as well. I thank you for giving the opportunity. And I hope that in some small way, I've touched the hearts of the people who listen to this podcast. And I want to thank you for drawing me out with such inviting questions and such a loving heart. Thank you so much. I, I wish I could go on, but um, thank you, Ken, for not just being here with us, but for everything that you do in your lifetime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.